Hey, this is Kate. Welcome back to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast, even though we took an ugly run instead of a walk. Sorry. This is Yolando and all. (laughs) And as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. And we're sorry if you've missed us. We had a plan. Did anyone miss us? I think people did miss us. And we had a plan about how we were going to fill our gap. I mean, because we... Would have at least said, you "Hey, are you about won't to tell see us." Me. Well, no, I'm going to say it's a terrible plan because it required me to do nothing. So, I mean, it is a brilliant or terrible plan depending on how liberated you are. So, we sort of thought, like, "Oh, we'll put up some sermons just in case you missed our voices." And then, um, I, of course, I mean, this is just a good place to say, "Here's what I do to contribute to this podcast." Um, I pay the fee to host it on SoundCloud and I show up and talk. And so if the one of the reasons, I mean, I know the joke is like two pastors take a walk and one of them talk and one of them makes a podcast. Um, But if that is the joke, the truth is that you're the one who makes the podcast. I'm the one who can't shut up, but you're the one who has all of the practical knowledge. Listen, it just takes all kinds. uh, Well, right. But I'm just saying like, I um, do nothing to actually make this podcast accessible to Not anyone true. but my own head. No. So anyway, the plan was, the plan, air quotes, was that um, we, air quotes, were going to upload some sermons as we took some weeks off for Holy Week. And then Yolanda was out of town and, quote, we didn't do it, but I am a freeloader. <laughs> so, um, so sorry. That's a long way to say Sorry if you've missed us. But we're glad to be back. We're, we're glad to be back. So, um, yeah. So what's astonishing you, friend? What's astonishing me? It's been two weeks. Um, in that time, we've celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. And about six weeks ago, I think it was, I think it was about six weeks, um, I did a funeral for someone in our neighborhood, uh, someone that I did not know, but someone who had... Um, a connection, a tie, at one time, a membership at Derrida Church. I think they've been gone for maybe 20 plus years, but this family contacted me to say this person has died and we would really love for the pastor of Derrida Church to officiate um, the homegoing service. And I said, yes, 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 always yes. The service was at the funeral home. It was supposed to be all graveside, but the weather was cold and rainy, and so it was moved inside. But the plan was to have a short committal service at the gravesite. So we had the service inside. People were gracious and wonderful, and we went to the graveside, and it was, you know, those are typically, the committal services are usually very, very short. Mm-hmm. So we all arrived there pretty much at the same time. And when I walked to the gravesite, I was surprised to see um, this person had been cremated. So there was um, a little stand uh, with an urn on top. And um, toward the bottom of the stand, there was a, a, a plate Um, maybe a little larger than a a car license plate, but it was of a Confederate flag. And so, of course, as an African-American, I was just, um, I 
was taken aback, didn't know what to make of that being there. If it was, um, if it was a sign of hatred, if it was a sign of we're we're representing something else. There's n no intended offense, um, and um, any offense was purely out of ignorance. Um, I don't know why it was there, and so because we needed to have that committal service, I had to make a quick decision, right? Do I say something and kind of disrupt things, or do I just swallow it and go forward? And in that moment, I chose to stay in the role of a priest instead of entering the role of a prophet. And um, we had the committal service. The family was wonderful and gracious and kind and all things good. Relationally, even before the service, I sensed no hesitation in having me lead uh, that, that service. But I left, of course, with questions like, what, what was that about? Uh, and I, I really did not know what to do with it. And so um, I'm grateful that God has so wired me to be able to <laughs> fairly easily compartmentalize things. And so I just put it in a folder, in a mental folder, and closed it and said, okay, I will come back to that. And to my surprise. I should not have been surprised because this is what God does. To my surprise, the wife of the deceased showed up in worship on Easter Sunday, brought two other family members, and I think both had been at that mm -hmm. funeral service. They were wonderful and warm and gracious and so excited to be there. And I thought, okay, this is kind of a one-time thing. Well, she came back the following Sunday, and she and I just had a beautiful time of getting to know each other even more in the parking lot this past Sunday for about 15 minutes. No one else was around. And um, just a, a real, a, a deeper connection. And so now in retrospect, um, you know, there's that, there, that, um, that place in scripture where the apostle Paul says that um, the love of Christ uh, constrains us um, that, that mm -hmm. we do things um, in obedience to Christ because we love Jesus and we do not um, walk according to our flesh, but we walk in love. Um, I, can, I can see now, because <laughs> part of me was, was really second-guessing my decision to stay mm -hmm. in my priestly role. Mm -hmm. But in retrospect now, I can see that it was the right thing, that it was done out of love, now, and I'm not saying that's always the right thing to do in that situation. I'm sure there are times when someone should speak up and that that's done in love. But for me in that moment, it was good for me not to blow it up. Because what's going to happen, at least what I sense the Lord doing, is establishing a relationship between me and this woman. And um, I think it's beautiful. I think God is going to use it. God's going to grow me. God's going to grow her. And I think this is what kingdom advancement looks like. So often, when it comes to symbols like the Confederate flag, I mean, I'm one of those people that is a bit triggered by it. But now, it's, 
it's easier for me to see that that is a symbol that is fading away. That in light of Easter, in light of the resurrection, it, it is the cross that is the mustard seed that's spreading. It is the cross uh, that is the, the, the stronger symbol. Now, it, it's very hard for me to see that sometimes when I get triggered by the Confederate flag. And yet, in my best moments, I can see that this may be a person like many others who get, for whatever reason, connected to, wrapped up in, maybe in bondage to symbols that the cross seeks to liberate from. I mean, what's interesting for me about all of, I mean, the whole conversation is, I mean, listening as a white person, because we talked about this at the podcast before. No, we did not. Oh, we didn't. No. We oh, we started to, and then it, oh, and like, yep, yep, yep. So we started to talk about this, the, no, a few days after it happened, mm -hmm. and then uh, we had some te technical had difficulties, and so we had to erase that whole right. podcast, and we never... Um, yeah. Uploaded it. Well, I think, okay, so when we had talked about it before and when you were initially processing it, like, I just think that it's important to name that that choice that you made in that moment cost you a lot. Yes. And and so I just don't, I don't want people to uh, um, hear that and think that that was in, that that was a, a that and to discount what it cost you and that that symbol, like I'm not, um, it makes me uncomfortable to hear you use the language of being triggered by that symbol because it makes it seem like there's something hypersensitive in you <laughs> because triggering language is a, is a language that we use to dismiss um, people's offense yes, and, and to say like, oh, I didn't offend you, you yeah. were triggered. Wh and so, what I mean by that is I'm a person who, likes to have a great amount of self-control. And right. so when I feel that there is anything in my environment, in my life, that causes me to um, have an emotion that, uh, that that's kind of like a, you know, a leaf in um, a stream of water. It's like, I, I can't really get a handle on this. I can't control this. That's when I get concerned. That's, that's when I, I, I notice that. Well, I'm just saying that you in that moment. But I get your point. Yeah. I mean, you in that moment chose to um, pick up your cross and follow, right? Like you chose yes. to absorb the offense and continue in your role of ministering to this family. And that was a costly choice and it was a beautiful choice. And I don't want the holiness of that choice to be obscured that anybody listening to this would be sort of like, Oh yeah, that's what you do. Like it wasn't intended and they were grieving and you move on and blah, 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 and see it all worked out. Like what I think it's important because I think in that conversation that we lost, I was saying, um, I don't know. I mean, we don't know how that symbol ended up there and, and what anyone's intention was in putting it there. Um, but if we, thought experiment out well what would it have been had I showed up at a graveyard and that symbol had been there like as a white person I think it would be 
um, more problematic for me to not acknowledge it because it's not an attack on my humanity, it's an attack on someone else's. And so I think, um, I mean, I just think it's a really tender situation. And, um, but I do think taking the cross of Jesus Christ seriously, it is not, it's not a, it's not the sorting hat from Harry Potter, right? Like the cross isn't, is not, the message of the cross is not, well, this is what sorts people into good people and bad people. And so people who put Confederate flag symbols out in 2022 are bad people. And so like, forget them and let's just like move on our way. Like, I think that activists can say that and I don't, I, I don't qualm that, but I think for people of the cross, we say like, no people who are possessed and enthralled and find their identity in symbols that are um, filled with hate and dehumanizing um, ideology. Because to me, you know, whatever, I know all of the language that people use about heritage and not hate, but if your heritage is based on the belief that some people aren't people, <laughs> then that's problematic. And if you can't find your own flourishing humanity in a construct where other people can flourish in their humanity, then you are enslaved to a lie. And it is not only destructive to other people, but it's destructive to you. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it is, though, important to say, um, you know, Jesus didn't, didn't retaliate and he didn't hurt vulnerable people. And in that moment, in that grieving moment, people are vulnerable and to minister to vulnerable people, I think is really holy. Um, so I think, and I think, yes, like to be able to see and celebrate what is the Lord able to do in your sacrificial act of forbearance and bearing with them in love in that moment is just worth noting and celebrating. And I will also say as a white person, sometimes, um, we white people really in, um, enjoy having relationships with black people as long as they don't make us feel uncomfortable. <laughs> and so I think there are a lot of white people who specifically want to seek out um, friendships and relationships um, and that those relationships are contingent upon don't talk to me about any part of your lived experience that makes me feel accountable or guilty or uncomfortable in any way. And so I think what does it look like to be faithful to that family outside of the moment of grief is a different question because on the one hand like of course we want to have in our community people who are in the process of transferring their allegiance from symbols of death and oppression and lie to this ultimate symbol of liberation and beauty and peace which is the cross right and if we're only building um, communities for people who already <laughs> see the cross and know the cross and have allegiance to the cross, then we are missing our calling, which is to be in relationship with people who are on the way. Um, and also, I think the same love that required you swallowing the offense and bearing the cross in that moment, at some point will require, I think, I, I could be totally wrong, but I think when you talk about what does it mean to be pastorally faithful to a white person who continues to not see the harm and danger of the Confederate cross, regardless of 
the ethnicity of the pastor, like at some point it requires saying like, look, you have to understand that the cross and the Confederate flag are incompatible. And if you are only willing to be a part of this community as long as you can bring the Confederate flag in with you, then there comes a point where we say, no, you, ha- you have to choose. And so I don't, you know, who knows when that point comes and the Holy Spirit has to really lead us in that. And it has to always be painful, um, but we have to be willing to let people leave. And I think that's just the really hard thing about seeking to build communities where vulnerable and evolving people are welcome is to say like when do you start when do you stop protecting people from the consequences of their choices right so like a white person should not reasonably expect to befriend people of color if they have a confederate flag bumper sticker on their car, right? Like that is an unreasonable expectation. Now, a black person who is a Christian might say, I want to intentionally enter into relationship with this person as an act of forbearing love and to be open to how the Holy Spirit might grow and change us and make us come alive in this relationship. But at some point, there has to be, you know, a a relationship risking conversation where you just say like, look, the truth about that symbol is that it speaks death and harm to me and you can't say that you love me and also say that you want to hurt me just because and I think a lot of white people do like we want to say oh it doesn't mean that to us so it doesn't mean that to you and that's like saying you know when a man um, punches his wife in the face and then he says well that didn't hurt me so it didn't hurt you, right? I mean, it's just, and I, you know, just reading that book, I mean, it was really helpful that all the white friends I couldn't keep that I was just reading the Andre Henry book. And he was just talking about how he would be in these relationships with um, white women and women of color who were not black. And they would really want to, um, they would want to make demeaning comments about his hair or touch his hair in ways that made him feel uncomfortable or use racial slurs and say like, no, well, I can do this because of our relationship. And he eventually had to say like, no, I don't want to be in relationship with you if you want to do this because it's incompatible with a relationship based on honor and love and respect. And I just think like all that stuff is tricky and we can't, we have to be willing to like have honor for people who are being made alive by the Holy Spirit because somebody bore with us in love. But then also sometimes we have to get to a point where we say, hey, it's time to level up in love. And I know that it's possible, like it is possible to not put a Confederate flag symbol out anymore. So it's not like you're saying speak in tugs or you're out the door. We're saying like, I'm asking you to do something that you can do. So you either get to choose, do you want to do this and stay in relationship or do you want to make a different choice? And then you're just sort of like the prodigal son, like you, you leave and you see like maybe life is better for you out there with your Confederate flag. And, and if so, like go with God, or maybe you'll go, wow, I held on to my right to do this thing, but I no longer get these relationships and it's not worth it anymore. And I want to come back. And then the community rejoices Um, But I think that's what we don't always get is what does it look like to walk in love? It doesn't always mean saying, well, whatever you do is okay and it's okay if you hurt me. 
It's not. And loving someone means I know that you are capable of maturing in Christ. And so I'm not going to um, do for you what you can do for yourself. And I'm not going to just assume that you're stuck where you are and you'll never you'll never be able to grow and mature. And the way that I know people can grow and mature is because I have. And if I can, anyone can. <laughs> like that sort of humility. Yeah, two things come to mind. Number one is that this is really messy. Mm-hmm. It's, it's um, there's a pop singer that has a song uh, called um, Beautiful Mess. Um, <coughs> and I, I think he's singing about his marriage, but it... <coughs> But 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 Sorry. this it, coffee it, wrong th- th- not COVID it was coffee <laughs> are you sure I'm positive but this work is beautiful and messy mm-hmm. that's one number two part of the grace for me in a situation like that is that I also have an understanding of my own power in mm-hmm. the situation like I didn't control whether or not that plate was there but. I had the power to decide what to do in that moment. Correct. Yep. When this person came to worship, I, I'm I'm in the power position. I'm I'm the pastor, mm-hmm. so I can. Um, it it's fairly easy for me. I need another word other than easy because it is hard work. Um, <laughs> but I I do understand. You have the agency. I have the agency. Thank you to absorb. Uh, some things that I could take offense to, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it is hard work, it's messy work, and yet there is a grace to do it. And I, and I do think you're right. There, There's going to come a time when we have to have uh, some hard conversations. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, my, my goal, my plan just to build a relationship of trust, build right. a foundation so that that, that can, can happen. happen. And with those, I'm oh, sorry. Well, and to, and to understand where she's coming from. Right. Because it's, it's possible that she had no clue that that was going to be, it's, it's possible that I, I, I don't know the story. I mean, I just don't, I don't know the story. So, um, my face is talking right yeah, now. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. I, I do think when it comes time to have that hard conversation, what I think is important to be clear about is you'll be having that conversation for her sake, not for your sake. Correct. Right? And that's the thing. And my experience in this whole area is that there will be something else that comes along (laughs) in life that will give an opportunity to, to talk about this issue. Maybe not that particular occasion, but this Thing, this issue of race, racism will, mm-hmm. will come up again. And so um, it'll, it'll give us an opportunity to, um, uh, to deepen relationship. Well, and that's why I think it's really helpful when we as pastors and as people of faith in general, um, but really understand that we are not the source of power or change, or grace in our congregations, um, that God is doing that work. And so we have this healthy detachment and ability to say, like, I think that God is up to something. I think that these interactions won't be wasted. I don't need to see visible results, right? Like that, I think of Paul saying, like, well, I 
you know, whoever planted and Apollos watered and somebody else harvested to say like, you, you can minister to this family and know that if at some point it comes up and this family walks away, um, that that's not a waste and that's not lost. It is a stage and something that God can write into the story of redemption. And I think that's really where we get tripped up or, well, I shouldn't even put, we like where I have gotten tripped up in the past and continue to get tripped up sometimes as a pastor is just being too myopic and just sort of feeling like, well, I need to continue in this relationship and I need to do whatever it takes to make sure that this person stays connected to this community because whatever happens that I don't see isn't happening, right? And so just to be able to say, like, this is a way bigger story. It just reminds me of the Apostle Paul. He understood himself to be both a Hebrew of Hebrews and an apostle to the Gentiles, right? So he said... um, I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Jesus Christ now lives in me, and the life I live, I now live by faith in the Son of God. And so he's able to engage in this ministry to people who are different ethnically than him, and it costs him a lot. Yeah. And yet, and and he endures a lot, but he does it with joy, humility, always pointing to Christ and what you just said in a, in a way that's open-handed. If people walk away, they walk away, but that doesn't mean God isn't, hasn't done anything. With right. And I, cause I think what's important when we're talking about building multi-ethnic communities is just to really understand that. Um, and Paul's a good example. Like he's, he's building, I mean, well, bu- even, I mean, I ha- hesitate to use the word building because what I think we're we're talking about is this like active passivity, right? Like you yes. are actively making yourself passively available yes. to be used by the Holy Spirit. And you're saying like, I am making choices and making moves that only make sense if the Holy Spirit is alive and at work and continuing the work of the word of God, Christ in the world. And only makes sense if you know where this whole enterprise of the world is going, which is new creation. Which is new creation. And if you know that, then you understand that the power of God is actively moving all things toward reconciliation, wholeness, and healing. And, And what I think is interesting and hard because we don't, I don't think we think in the church deeply enough about what it means to be a multi-ethnic community. But if you look at the life of Paul, I mean, it's really signing up to be in some ways a stranger in all communities, right? Like yes. he's never going to be a Gentile, yes. but he's also never going to be Jewish anymore, right? He's always mm-hmm. going to be too Jewish for the Gentiles and too like profane and defiled for the Jews. And it, and it's about Paul really saying like, forgetting what lies behind, I'm pressing on towards what's ahead. And like, it's not that everything about my previous community and my previous identity was garbage, but it is that I know that God is doing something new in me and in everyone around me and in all of creation. And so I'm leaning into the newness and I'm letting go, not just of the um, bad things from the past, but also even the good things. And I, and I think that's, you know, there's just a lot of loss 
that is inherent in being part of a multi-ethnic community. And I don't think we talk about that. We make it seem like, oh, come be in a multi-ethnic church and it's all Shangri-La and beautiful and it's the best of everything. I mean, we hold hands and sing, we are the world. Right. I mean, and I think the reality is like, I do think. But it think, is beautiful and wonderful and I there's do much think, to be gained. I do think it's the best of everything. I really do. And I also know for sure it costs. And I know for sure there is loss. In fact, I was just talking to a friend about who is in our community, who is black, and she was talking about being in another space with her um, where there was just a in a more traditional black worship space and listening to the singing and kind of mourning that her black sons are not growing up with that. And I, you know, and just saying like, yeah, I mean, that is true. Like that is a deep and rich and good God-given gift to the black church. And to choose a multi-ethnic church means leaving that good gift behind. And I'm not going to sit here and say that what happens in our church is the same. It can't be. It doesn't have those songs that are handed down, forged in pain and the struggle for liberation. I mean, like, you know, it doesn't have the weight of that glory. That's not to say that God's not in it. And it's not to say that God isn't crafting something new and beautiful. But I mean, we can't lie and say there's not a cost. I mean, yes. there is a cost. And I think that we all need to be really just uh, um, transparent about saying you, you can't come in here to a multi-ethnic community and expect that it won't take work and sacrifice and there won't be a cost to be paid because there is. And, and if you think that there won't, you'll just be sorely disappointed. Um, so anyway, I, I, yeah, well, and it's, it's part of the, you know, at one point, um, the disciples said to Jesus, you know, but Lord, we've given up all right. these things to follow you. Right. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you do give up things to follow. Right. Yes. And Jesus' answer is, and it will be, you know, it will be repaid to you. Yes. Seven, I mean, I don't know if he says sevenfold, but I mean, he's saying yes. like, yes, I am acknowledging the reality of your sacrifice. It is not all miracle bread and calming the storms. Mm -hmm. Like there is real sacrifice. And when we lie about that, I think we really set people up for um, failure because mm. we don't um, tell the truth about yes. our illusions and idols. And, you know, another thought comes to me about the word trigger triggered that I used earlier and I think what I mean by that is there are some things in society that I sense falsely are an existential threat to me and I, I think that's what I mean mm -hmm. by triggered that my my existence, my well-being is threatened by the existence of certain symbols. And, and in, in many cases, those symbols exist to make me feel that because then that, that lowers the ceiling on my humanity, that lowers mm -hmm. the ceiling on what I'm willing to step out and do and be and become and all those you know, wonderful human growth things. And so when I feel that kind of existential threat, I take note and mm -hmm. I, I want to always respond to that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what are you thinking about? No, what's astonishing you? Um, what is astonishing me? Um, 
is I mean a lot. Like we 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 have not done this for a couple of really significant weeks. Um, so I will say I I found I love Holy Week. Um, I've always loved Holy Week. I always feel um, just. I mean, I don't mean to sound like a jerk, but like if you complain about Holy Week as a pastor, it's like an NFL player complaining about having to go to the Super Bowl, right? Like it's it's <laughs> it's this huge gift to get to walk through this story, this truth that is just the catalyst and center of our identity and our connection to God and just all that is sacred in our lives. So um I've I I've always felt that way. And for the past two years, you know, there's just been so much longing for what we couldn't do because of the pandemic. Um, so it was really curious to me this year when we get to do, um, we get to be in person to celebrate these things and it doesn't have to be online and videos. And I was surprised by how hard it was. I was surprised by how tired I was. Um, and I mean, I just think it's important to, to name that because I, I think that if there's so much just good and beautiful and rich about life in general and life in our community and this season of my life, like I know there'll be other seasons that won't be that. Um, but, but even in what is good and a dream come true, it's just hard. And so I, I was really not prepared for how hard it would be. And just, I think how difficult it is still for everyone in the church to be in this season of rebuilding their lives. And so people just, um, for lots of reasons, didn't have the capacity um, to participate in ways that were normal in the past. And so it was just really difficult to discern what should this year's Holy Week look like. And, um, so I think we did some really good and beautiful things and I'm happy that we pushed for some things. Um, but I just, it was hard. Um, and, um, Easter was beautiful and I was surprised. Um, and I think it's important just to talk about how weird it is to be a pastor on Easter because it's, I mean, obviously it's an amazing day and it's a beautiful day and it is, I mean, I, I don't think you had this experience because you started out as a solo pastor, but I mean, I spent years and years, 10 years as an associate where on Easter, I had a very small role to play and you'd sort of look at the person who was leading the congregation and just be like, oh, I can't wait to do that. And so I still always have this great sense of like what a privilege it is to get to lead worship on those days. And I, and I, I think I'll always feel that way. And I'm grateful, um, for that experience. <laughs> um, and also it's just, it's strange because I, I was saying to another friend, it feels like part family reunion and part audition mm. and, and just people's, um, expectations, especially after two years of not being able to worship in person. Yeah. It just, um, it was hard for me to make sense of that. And normally I'm pretty, um, I'm pretty centered. And I think just the exhaustion and the mental energy it took 
to do, if we were doing a spring break vacation Bible school and the Holy Week services and to modify them and just to deal with the level of ambiguity, um, it just made it really hard for me to be rightly centered on Easter morning. Um, but it was a beautiful worship service and it was a beautiful worship service because people were there, you know, and so it was just really glorious. Um, and it was glorious. I always think that Easter and Christmas Eve are actually, if you can center yourself rightly, are, I think some of the easiest services of the whole year because it just... I would add Pentecost. And Pentecost, because you just, people come and, and the people know why they're there and this, you don't really... Um, you just don't have to make it sp- like work to make people to be able to see the sacredness because it's just so visible. So I, I don't know. It was just, it was, it was beautiful sort of in spite of me and I'm grateful for that. Well, um, I think on those Sundays, especially Christmas and Easter, it's easier. It's actually probably necessary to move from teaching to celebration. Mm-hmm. You don't really have to, teach because there's there's a narrative there's a biblical story that people already have in mind and so you're celebrating something which mm-hmm. is I, I think there's a there's a heart hunger especially for people in the mainline tradition um to celebrate yeah and you don't have to i mean p- people can already receive perceive the meaningfulness of this like so if you're going to preach on say a story like I don't know, like we enjoy preaching on obscure biblical stories and it's fun to go like, this seems like it makes no sense. And then let me like add these layers of meaning and context and remove these layers. And you'd be like, oh my gosh, this, but you don't have to do that on Easter. You don't have to do this on Christmas Eve because it's just right there. And um, anyway, so I, it, it was a beautiful service because God has made a beautiful community at the Grove, like in spite in spite of me in many ways and just so generously. And I'm, I'm so grateful to be a part of it. I will say I love the Sunday after Easter. I, I, it is one of my favorite, I mean the Sunday quote air quotes after, because there is no after Easter or every Sunday is after Easter for us. But I, I love the people who are led by the Holy spirit to come back. I also love the people who weren't that like, don't, it's not about those. It's not a diss on people who weren't there, but I'm just saying no judgment. I just love it when people are coming back to wrestle with the question like, okay, and what does this mean? Mm -hmm. And now what? So I, I love that day and I feel really um, energized and excited to um, gather. Um, And so that was a really beautiful day. And just in general, what I'm astonished at lately is, um, the gift that it is that I, um, the culture of the Grove is a culture of friendship. And I am so grateful <laughs> that that is the relationship that we are going for um, with one another. In And that I am the pastor of the church and that means I have certain responsibilities um, and it means I have been equipped in certain ways. But it is a flat, non-hierarchical um, community, and um, we're walking along together as friends. And I feel like theologically, like that is a hill I will die on. That when Jesus says at the Last Supper, you know, wash his feet, and then says, 
I'm giving you a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you, and follows that up with saying, you know, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what their master is doing, but I call you friends. And I just think that is so revolutionary. It is such a huge catalytic moment to say that in the family of God, in the kingdom of God, there is no longer a hierarchy and we're no longer you know, you know, gradiating people between, you know, good, better, best, or, but, you know, that we are friends of Jesus and that Jesus, Jesus's holiness does not require Jesus to separate himself above and over us. And if Jesus's holiness and faithfulness, faithfulness to us doesn't require that kind of separation, then I absolutely know that my faithfulness to the members of my community doesn't require that kind of arbitrary separation. And so, I mean, I find myself so amazed and astonished to be in a community where, you know, we'll be, you know, people will be talking to me um, and it, it doesn't happen as much with men for obvious reasons, but like I'll be talking with people about a different ministry or something and then hanging up and then be like, Hey, I love you. And I love you too. And like, just as somebody who, who grew up in kind of like traditional mainline white meritocracy culture, um, to say, I love you. Like that is something you said to members of your family, maybe. Um, and it's interesting to me that in a community where all of us would say theologically, that this is a community based on love. It is interesting that it's like this big, bright, red, no, no line to actually say to someone, I love you, right? And I think, you know, because, and rightfully so, we need to have great clarity about how we honor one another and how we are intentional in how we talk and certainly in how we touch and how there are intimate relationships. And um, then obviously the the relationships in the church are friendship relationships, but they're not intimate relationships. Um, like all of that needs to, to be thought, you know, we need to think about that. But to say it's inappropriate in some way just to say to a brother or a sister in the church, like, I love you. Like the fact that we think, that that's not okay, I think just says so much about how sick our culture has gotten, right? And if we can't teach people how to be in a healthy, loving friendship, then I don't know why we think that people would have the skills to be able to determine what is an unhealthy thing, right? So I think we, when we talk about what healthy relationships look like, the only thing we know how to do is say, this is bad, <laughs> um, and then we just sort of make a huge, huge buffer to say, um, you know, if if you basically have no friendships within the church, then you can't have any boundary violations. And I just think that's so unhelpful. And and just part of the reason I'm talking about this is because I've been reading some materials recently about a boundary training that I'm gonna be a part of in another in another. Um, role in my life uh, unrelated to being a, um, a local pastor. And one of the things that it says very explicitly is pastors cannot be friends with members of their congregation. That is a boundary violation. Wow. And, um, it is a, you know, 
it's, it's a, a misunderstanding of friendship. Well, I think so. And essentially what they're saying is you cannot have a personal relationship with anyone in your congregation. Like you are the God dispenser and people cannot have, there can't be mutuality in your relationship because then people, I mean, I think it comes from a place of, um, I'm not, I'm, I'm not disparaging the motives of the people who think that way. They're saying pastors have power. And so members of the congregation have less power. And so they won't have the ability to say no to a personal relationship, but essentially they're asking us to re, um, recreate a hierarchy in the body of Christ that I think is theologically problematic. And they're saying like, the only way we can, we can prevent people from having bad relationships is just to, um, commodify the church and say like, no, the, this is a professional relationship. The church members pay money and the pastor gives God product and that's what it is. And so you can't be friends. And I, and I just find that to be so sad. And also I think one of the reasons maybe that so many mainline churches are withering on the vine. It's life denying. Right. And, and it, and it, if you are the leader of the congregation and you refuse to have authentic healthy, flourishing friendships and loving relationships with people. I mean, if it's just this transactional thing, then I don't wonder why people in the congregation don't have those kinds of relationships as well. Like we see other people as threats we need to be protected from. Now, I'm not saying that as a pastor, I don't think on the daily about what are the healthy and life-giving boundaries? Um, there, there are parts of my life that, particularly my life as it relates to the challenges of pastoring and the things I know in confidence that I absolutely do not share with my friends in or out of the church. Um, and there are times when I recognize that I am going through something and I need care and people in my congregation are not it's not fair for me to ask that from them, right? Like yes. they are not there to meet my emotional needs. And so, but to say, just to take friendship off the table and replace it with faux professionalism, I just think is so unhelpful. And I was also thinking about like, if you really do believe that, then the next level is like, I don't know how you can then say that families of pastors can authentically be integrated into communities either. Because if, I can't ask someone to take a bike ride with me because that might be an exploitation of my power. Then how can I let my daughters be friends with someone, another peer in the church? Because wouldn't that be like a family would feel like they have to invite my daughter or have to, I mean, how could my spouse choose to show up at an event and share? I mean, you know, it's basically saying that pastors can serve a community, but not be part of a community. And so I just, what I am so grateful for and what I'm so astonished by is the way that the Lord has um, led me to have a different understanding of that, even without totally being aware of it and how grateful I am to be in a community of people who are my friends. And I'm not saying that it is not messy <laughs> and I'm not saying that it doesn't take intentionality and I'm not saying that it's easy all the time, but I'm saying, um, it is, it gives so much flourishing to me. Um, and I just think what really helps us come alive in Christ is love. 
like loving one another. And you can't love someone if you're not, if you're just selling them something. But what if someone says to you, but um, if you're a member of a mega church, you're not friends with the pastor. And that seems to work. Do, does, does that model work? Well, I mean, I would say one thing is, I, I, I don't really know from mega churches, and I don't, I, I, I am not someone who says, I don't have an opinion on what God can do in a mega church, really. I mean, that's just, that's obviously not what I have. <laughs> it's not the assignment that the Lord has given me. It's also not what I aspire to. So, I mean, I do get that in a larger church, that's not possible, but I'm not in a larger church. And I do think that someone might say like, well, it's not fair that you would have, obviously you can't have the same level of friendship with everyone. And so is that not fair? And does it create division and, um, you know, tension in the congregation? And I would say like, look, I'm not, I'm not going to say that that's not real, but I also think in terms of helping people heal and become healthy disciples of Jesus, we need to help people learn not to be threatened by other people's friendships. Right. And so if as a pastor, I am incapable of um, having integrity in handling ministry decisions and conflicts in the church, like if I am a person who feels like I can't risk my relationships and so I need to give the people I'm closest to in the congregation everything they want to the detriment or at the expense of people that I'm less close in, then yes, that would be a problem. Um, but I also think even if you don't think that you have friendships with members in your congregation, that is something that pastors have to wrestle with all the time because you just have key stakeholders in your community and you always have to wrestle with how much am I prioritizing the weight of this person who's a key ministry leader or a key giver, right? So key giver of resources. Um, and so I think like just an awareness of how you're being faithful to every member in your congregation and really seeking the Lord about, you know, what, what does it look like to be a faithful person to the, you know, to this person or in this, what does it look like to be a faithful pastor to this person? Like, like working that out is just something you need to wrestle with. Um, but I, I don't know. I think friendships beget friendships. And I think that, healthy churches are friendship factories. I, I just really think so. And I think that real intimacy and friendship does produce conflict. And I think we see that in the New Testament. And I think what we see is how God gives revelation and spiritual growth and fruitfulness, not in spite of those conflicts, but through those conflicts. And so we don't need to be afraid of conflict. We can lean in in loving and intentional ways and really expect that God will bring blessing even in this place of conflict. This past Sunday, we sang that song by Israel Houghton. I'm, I'm a, friend, a friend of God. Yeah, I'm a friend of God. And um, I didn't plan to do this, but after we sang that song, I thought, let's, let, let's think about this song. Uh, it's a nice song. Mm -hmm. I love that song. But that's a big deal mm -hmm. to say I am a friend of God. It, that's a powerful declaration. And so just, you know, in that moment, um, I was led to talk about that place where the Bible says that Abraham mm -hmm. was a friend of God. So, so what, what are we talking about when we talk about friendship biblically? 
um, I, and I was reminded of that place where um, David and Jonathan, the son of Saul, David mm-hmm. and Jonathan are described as friends and that they were of one soul. Mm-hmm. And my understanding of the soul is to be um, that part of, of the, the human person that uh, thinks, feels, wills. And so to say we are friends or that I am a friend of God, in my estimation, means that there are things that we do together. We, we share thoughts. Mm-hmm. We share feelings. We share a way of life. We, we do things together. And in that sense, yes, we, I think we, we must think of the church as, and I love the way you put it, as a friendship factory, mm-hmm. because that flows from the very heart of God. If the Bible says that Abraham was a friend of God, then that says something about what it means to be a spiritual person. Mm-hmm. It means to share thoughts, feelings, and a way with God, and to have God share those with you. Mm-hmm. And that's... And to be shaped, and right? Be like shaped Abraham's yes. life, Abram, I mean, gets a new name, yes. gets a new place. Like, I mean, and I think that is so true too, that our friends shape us. And certainly like our adolescence, we know that about adolescence. And I think people, I mean, whatever, there, people are extroverts and people are introverts. And I know that's different. And it's not that everybody needs the same amount of social connection. But I think that as a society in general, we devalue friendship. We don't think about friendship. Like, not that they're all that, but the Greek and Roman philosophers, like, spent so much time thinking and teaching and pondering friendship and the philosophy of friendship and we live in a culture that is um you know family first and you know and go get it and you know grind and hustle and you know so we do not value friendship in our culture so we also don't value it in our church and i was just looking up you know and i was reading this morning um in john 14 and i really like i mean i always like the message um paraphrase i like reading it along with the niv um, but this is from the, um, I think from the Last Supper. Uh, yeah, it is from the Last Supper. And Jesus is saying, um, well, J- Judas, not Iscariot, saying, you know, why are you about to make yourself plain to us but not to the world? And Jesus says, John fourteen twenty three, because a loveless world, says Jesus, is a sightless world. I love that translation yeah. of... Um, and, which, I mean, the NIV is, Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And the translation um, here, a little bit further down in the messages, I'm telling you these things while I'm living with you, the friend, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send at my request, will make everything plain to you. And like, I just love this idea of like, yes, this image of like the Holy Spirit is a friend to us. So if Jesus is a friend of us and the Holy Spirit is a friend to us and God is a friend to Abraham and David and a friend to sinners, then like, why do we think that we shouldn't be striving to be friends with one another? And maybe what we need to do is rethink what our understanding of friendship is. And maybe we have an unhealthy and unholy understanding of friendship. And, and unexamined. Right. And well, unexamined, right? And so maybe what we need to do is let our I mean, let God define for us what it means to be friends. Because certainly, you know, in terms of 
not exploiting and bearing with one another of love and seeking the best for one another and giving up advantages. I mean, obviously that's built into the understanding of God, Jesus, and Holy Spirit being a friend, as is the ability to challenge, the ability to tell the truth. Um, so anyway, I, I just am grateful for a community of friendship. It is life-giving and it makes me a better pastor. Like the places where it's hard make me, I mean, a better pastor, but what's more important is a, a more mature disciple of Jesus Christ. And I'm really grateful of that. So what are you thinking about? This has already been a really long podcast. I know, right? <laughs> well, it's been and two I just weeks. I say, for the record, Yolando this morning was like, we can't do the podcast today because I haven't thought and I don't have anything to talk about. And I was like, friend, how long wow. have you known me? You how really, long have you known me? You because me like that. Again, well, I just, no, no, no. In one podcast. I don't think that that makes you look wow. bad. I think people would be like, oh, Yolando's really thoughtful and he really prepares. And Kate just shows up and just is like, wow. So I really wish I had not made that sound, but I know you're obviously not going to edit it out. So no I'm way. stuck with it. Uh, anyway, I knew we could talk. What are you thinking about? Well, I'll just simply share um, a quick story. Uh, I spent last week in the Great Smoky Mountains with my family. That is my mom and dad, my wife, and our eight-year-old son. And it was good to get away. We got a cabin in the mountains. It was um, lovely scenery. Uh, one day, we decided to drive deep into the mountains. And so for 40 minutes, we drove up mountains and down into valleys and saw beautiful mountain streams and um, all sorts of beautiful beautiful scenery. And it was wonderful. It was good to get away. And and, and I hate to keep, I mean, this, this same issue is coming up again from earlier in this podcast. But because it, but <laughs> where do we live? <laughs> it's, a, it's a thing. It's, it's just the thing right now. Um, so we went to the town of Gatlinburg. That's where our, our cabin was probably uh, 10, 15 miles outside of the town. And uh, one day we decided to go into the town to kind of walk the main strip there. And um, wow, lots. Of, and I've been to Gatlinburg before. And it was different this time. Uh, this time... Lots of souvenir shops with Confederate flag T-shirts and sweatshirts and other items there in the window um, uh, on the main drag. It's a, a Trump store. Um, just I, I, I was surprised. And lots of people wearing Confederate flags. And um, so, you know, I was trying to be on vacation, but in all honesty, I was... I was just not feeling good about it. Um, and so <laughs> my family and I were walking down the main um, street of Gatlinburg. And it was a cool morning. I think it might have been upper 30s, lower 40s. And so um, I spotted a, a Starbucks and walked in to get a coffee. And um, behind the counter, there was this wonderful young woman with, um, blue and green hair and um, uh, rainbow pin on her uh, green Starbucks apron and um, <laughs> yeah. 
she just had this not not a full smile, but you could tell the muscles wanting to like that she was happy to see me. There was kind of a twinkle in her eyes, like, "Oh, I'm so glad you, black man, came into the store." And frankly, if if you took a picture of me, I probably had the same look on my face. And I, I walked out of that Starbucks thinking, it, 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 it is a, a beautiful and wonderful thing, um, even when you're not the same kind of other, <laughs> when you can um, recognize and take comfort in just encountering someone who is, 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 is sharing a kind of discomfort um, and, and that without words, a look says, you're okay, I'm okay, it's okay, relax. And um, just the moment it took for her to take my coffee order and for me to pay was, um, it was life-giving. And, and, and for someone who doesn't know what that's like, it's probably the strangest thing, it probably makes no sense at all but if you have, if you've ever been in an environment in which you were not sure you were welcome, no one was doing anything to you or saying anything to you, but you just had an uneasiness. If you've ever been in that kind of situation and then to have someone also with that same anxiety see you like, Again, air quotes mm -hmm. to see you and you see them. Um, yeah, it just it was it was a shot of life for me. What I think is so interesting about that story is it was all nonverbal, mm -hmm. and I think that's really important for people who are seeking to make welcoming and healthy communities of any kind, but especially multi-ethnic communities, is to realize, and this is kind of like a duh thing, but to say like, look, churches are spiritual communities. And so obviously how our spiritual posture towards other people, even if our, the words and the things that are said out loud speak welcome or love or life, if our spirits do not authentically um, long for the good of the other, the welcome of the neighbor, the welcoming of strangers, the flourishing of other people, like if that, if we feel threatened or hostile or, um, you know, just ambivalent. ambivalent towards other people, that spirit is in our community and people will feel it and people will know it even if they're not conscious that they know it they'll just be like this isn't the place for me but if you you are a community where it's really the culture that you are intentionally creating that says we believe we exist for the sake of people who are not here yet and as well as for the people who already are and we really believe that um we are called to bless and be blessed by the people who are not yet in our community. And we really want people to cross the threshold of the space and feel loved and feel a sigh of relief that the world outside might view me with suspicion or hostility. But here in this place, 
people will give me the benefit of the doubt. People want, right? Like that's a real thing. And I do think it's helpful um, for white people to put themselves in a posture of curiosity and just really believe people um, who are black or indigenous or, you know, not white presenting when they say, I often walk around in the world and know that people see me as a threat or people view me with suspicion or people see me as less than human. And that takes a toll on my spirit. And just to say, I mean, as a white woman, I, I rarely experience that. There are some times where as a woman, I, I do explicitly and implicitly experience that. But I mean, if you are a white man, that's really rarely what you experience unless perhaps you've been in a space where you were one of the only white people in a space where um, the minority population around you has been abused by people or oppressed by white people. And then you might know what it's like to feel um, rejected. And that's not a, you know, that it just seems like, and I can remember thinking just in previous years, like, so people don't like you. So what? I mean, like, of course, you know that it's all like it's awful to go to middle school and feel like no one likes you, right? Like you, you know what that's like, and you want to say to people like, "Oh well, get over it." I mean, you'd like to get over it, but it. it so here is the here's the tension in my spirit, and there, there are two songs, and they seem to be polar opposites, but they are both true at the same time. There's a old spiritual that comes out of slavery, and I have a recording of it. Um, by the Fisk University Singers. And the song says, uh, I'm a rolling, I'm a rolling, I'm a rolling through an unfriendly world. Mm -hmm. And contrast that with a hymn that I truly believe also that says, this is my father's world, right? right? And both of those things are true. And there's just tension there. Well, and I think it's Jesus saying, like the kingdom of God is in your midst, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. So, um, but yeah, I, I think, actually, we were talking about Richard Rohr earlier, and I do think, you know, one of the things I get from his teaching that's really helpful is to recognize that Western culture is very dualistic. It's either this or that. And the reality is, um, that's not reality. Yes. That two things can be true at the same time. Yes. And not the same. And that's just hard for us because we think like, oh, you're a good person or you're a bad person. This is a good thing or well, a bad thing. This is just right think about or it's every wrong. Every culture war issue. Mm-hmm. It's either this or that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So well I yeah, I, I appreciate you sharing that story. I think it's really helpful for people to recognize how you can make an impact on the people around you even even if you don't say or do anything. And I, I mean, whatever, I used to hear the statistic that 90% of communication was nonverbal and I used to hear it and just roll my eyes. And now I, I hate to admit how wrong and ignorant I was that it is true um, that there's what we say and then whatever, it just sounds so woo woo, but there is, there is spirit, there is energy, there is, um, you know, there's truth beyond words and visibility and Mm -hmm. Obviously, we should be aware of that because we are Christians. <laughs> so what are you preaching? Um, I am in the sermon series, um, post-Easter series, um, at the Grove called Make Love the Measure. And we're really trying to... Um, oh, yeah. I saw your YouTube channel. I 
I subscribe to the Grove YouTube channel. And your artwork is great, by Thank the way. Thank you. Takia made that such so really, really good. Um, yeah, I. Um, this comes out of the work of Pete Scazzaro that we've been doing, the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. And he, he says one of the seven marks of a mature and healthy disciple, um, and they're all good, but, but one of them that he says that really sits with me is that um, love is the measure of maturity. So you no longer are impressed by wealth or power or efficiency or excellence as the world conceives it, that you understand that what real maturity in Christ is expressed in is love. And also that love is not a Hallmark movie. Love is not everybody liking you all the time, right? That, that, you know, when Jesus turns over the tables, that is an act of love. When Jesus, when the prophets call out injustice, that is an act of love. Just because it causes pain, that does not mean it's unloving, but love does not call us harm. Um, and so I just, I, I want on this season after Easter for us to really walk out this idea that people who, um, for whom the cross is the hinge of history, what we see on the cross, I, th I think, um, is that we see the love of Christ vindicated by God. Um, and we see on the cross what love costs those who choose um, to take a posture of love, not just towards people who love them, but also towards people who hate them. Um, and then we see in the resurrection, the vindication of that love. And then for us on the as as a resurrection people, people who practice resurrection, people and Easter people love then that Jesus love becomes the measure of maturity for us. And I think, you know, in the body of Christ from the very beginning, disciples have tried to make other things the measure of maturity. So whether it is, you know, knowledge, whether it is spiritual gifting, whether it is um, whatever ministry programs, um, yeah, I think that we really, um, are, the enemy of our souls can trick us into really despising love, um, that, you know, we think wrongly that love is something that anyone can do. And therefore we want to do something that is, you know, exceptional. Um, and so anyway, so that, that's what we're, we did the Emmaus walk last week. And I really liked looking at that from the idea that it really struck me this time that those two disciples in, in spite of all that they didn't know and understand about Jesus, um, they were so formed in the Jesus way that when the stranger next to them made like he was going to keep going, they were formed in love enough to say, hey, turn aside and come in and share a meal with me. And it strikes me that even though Jesus unpacked scriptures for them in really helpful ways that really reveal truth, they didn't see Jesus until they practiced love and invited him deeper into relationship. And then it was around the table that love set that they were, their eyes were open to the fact that they were walking with a resurrected Jesus. And so I think that particularly in our mainline world, um, we tend to think like right understanding is what will help us know the risen Lord. And I think in an evangelical world, it tends to be like spiritual gifting um, or will get us to know the risen Lord. And I think that the gospel says like no practicing love, which is something that's often undervalued 
across the spectrum of the body of Christ. It's practicing love that reveals the presence and intimacy of the risen Lord to us. And so I just want to think about that. And I'm reminded that uh, in that text, it's practicing love, not when things are going well in your life. not when No, are, when it's falling apart. Yes, they're, they're yeah. walking away in hopelessness because they thought, well, Jesus is dead and it's all over. And, right. Right? But still... They yeah. invite the stranger. Yeah, and so what we great. did, and I'm excited about it, and we'll see what happens. I, I, you know, you just have to put things out there and then just not really worry so much about what's beyond your control. But what we did was um, put a challenge at the end of the sermon that we called the Emmaus Challenge. And we just said, like, hey, um, like I had people get up and walk around. I told all the introverts they could flee towards the doors. Um, Thank you. And Bless you. <laughs> I said, like, what I know, I know I like am married to an introvert. Anxiety I, I know. I'm like, you did what? And I, and you know, I meant, I didn't say this, but I should have. Like, I get that that's spiritually uncomfortable for people, and I wouldn't do it every week, but sometimes we have to practice healthy spiritual discomfort. Sometimes. We'll talk. <laughs> Sometimes we, and I said to people, look, this is what I want to do. And you can, I mean, whatever, like, I can't make you do it. Doesn't, but I can't also say, well, no one's allowed to do this because it would make some people uncomfortable. That's not okay. But whatever. <laughs> what I said was, I'd like everybody to get up and move around this space and find someone you don't know and make a plan to make bread with, break bread with them, not make it, break it. So whether that's, I'll hey, meet that's, you for a donut before church. I'm not I'll mad make, at that. Right. Just I'm to say like, that. we will know Jesus, I think in real ways to the extent that we are willing to open our lives up to strangers because it's not just that they had a meal with them, but they also listened to him when he was a stranger to them and really took a posture of humility that he could teach them something even anyway, whatever, I'm not going to re-preach my sermon, but I'll be really interested. One of the pieces of feedback I get a lot, which I think is really valid is that um, I, I don't always help people practically figure out what to do with what I'm preaching. So I, I like that this was just a really practical takeaway of like, look, I think that this story is really about not just correcting your understanding of what resurrection means, but also now how do we practice? And literally these guys talked to a stranger and had a meal with a stranger and then knew Christ. And I think that that's what we need to be willing to do is to recognize that the people around us are not just rando strangers, they're Christ in disguise. And we need to be willing to be open to being in a relationship, being friends, sharing a meal so that's what I'm thinking. Well, I, I may um, use some of that for this week because I'm preaching the Emmaus um, <laughs> <laughs> Good story this, this week. Well, we're in a series, um, and I didn't plan this series. It, it just really came to me um, by the Spirit while I was on vacation, um, a series called Encounter. And that word came to me following our church's prayer summit a few weeks ago. One of the things that um, has been revealed to me is that there's this heart hunger among the saints at Dorada Church to, to really, well, to have the next level of experiencing God, mm -hmm. um, to, to, to not go through the motions of mm -hmm. church. Um, and so this past Sunday, we looked at John 20, where Jesus appears in the room mm -hmm. where they're afraid, uh, mm -hmm. locked behind doors for fear of, of the religious leaders. Jesus shows up. 
So many of us are coming out of a church tradition that trained us to think, come in, sit down, and receive ministry. Right. And the heart hunger is come in, engage, and experience God. Right. And that's quite a shift. And so what I'm saying in these weeks, what I feel like the Spirit is saying in these weeks um, is encounters with the Lord because of the resurrection of Jesus do not have to be rare in your life. Right. Uh, so, yes. So we, we, we had this prayer summit, and in a traditional church mindset, we had an event. We put something mm-hmm. on the calendar. We could attend it, check it off, pat ourselves on the back when it was done. Mm-hmm. But we found ourselves in an encounter with God. And we could walk away thinking that was great, God was there, but also thinking, okay, that's just a rare thing. So we, we think encounters with God are only like Moses at the burning bush. Right, right. Isaiah having a vision, as right. Isaiah, an angel coming to visit Mary. But because of the resurrection, there we once your faith is in Jesus, then the Apostle Paul says, you are now in Christ. You yeah. live, move, and have your being within the realm of the Son of God. Yeah, just, I mean, today, um, in that same reading I was doing, well, no, this is from First Peter, that I also really like the message translation was, let yourself be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life, a life energetic and blazing with holiness, right? So I love that. It's that active passivity. It's saying, like, the Holy Spirit is a friend, is yeah. with you, and then what you get to do is yield to because what the we, Holy Spirit is doing, yes. forming you into a life shaped by God's life. Because we cannot make encounters with God happen, nope. and yet they are available to us as a lifestyle. And I also really like this idea of saying, like, look, there are mountaintop moments, and those are beautiful moments. Those are sacred moments. And I can just remember having this conversation with our friend Lisa Coons because she will often share some real mountaintop moments that she has with the Lord in prayer. And, and she is a mystic, so she is just uniquely formed in beautiful ways to the benefit of the whole body of Christ. And I'm grateful. Um, but I, I just remember, you know, she was really encouraging me in my prayer life. And I was like, yeah, Lisa, you know, if it were like, if for me, it was like what it is for you, I'd pray more, right? Like if I could go to God and just be like, I'm really overwhelmed. And then all of a sudden just have this ecstatic moment of like the Lord showing me this and showing me that and comforting me. Like if I had those moments, yeah, I pray all the time too. And she was like, you know, you really think it's like that for me every time you don't understand that I go into prayer and I have, you know, the many, 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 I now I think less than most people, but many experiences where it just it feels dry. It doesn't feel like there's this deep encounter. And she was like, you need to retrain your understanding that it's more like a farmer going out to work a field. Mm-hmm. And that some days you go out to work the field and like it's spring and the temperature is wonderful and the birds are singing and you get to plant seeds. And other days it's winter and it's raining and it's miserable and it's a blazing sun. Like there's just glorious days and then there's glor- days where the glory of God is happening all around in the field, but you don't see it and it's harder work and it doesn't feel good, but it is good. And the sum total of your faithfulness is the fruitfulness of the land, which you did not make 
Like you can't make your crops grow, but you have a role to play in in increasing. So if we the, take the yeah. Emmaus text, right. right? What is that? Luke twenty four. Luke twenty four thirteen to thirty five. Oh, very good. So what did those two followers of Jesus do? They walked with a stranger. They talked with a stranger about the scriptures. They invited a stranger in, and they shared a meal with a stranger. Mm -hmm. And in that, they encountered Jesus. And Jesus was with them the whole time, even though they were feeling hopeless. Mm -hmm. In John 20, when the disciples... were not our hearts burning within us, right? So like our hearts were burning within us, but we had no awareness of it. We had no awareness. And in John 20, when the disciples were behind locked doors, it says Jesus appeared among them and they saw his hands and his side. And it seems to me that maybe perhaps could be that Jesus was there the whole time because he said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there in the midst of this, in the midst of them. But at some point of his choosing, he made himself manifest among Mm -hmm. them there the whole time, even though they're shaking in their shoes for fear of the religious leaders engaging in spiritual practice, seeking encounter with God, one has to remember that the Lord is always present. Right, right. Whether you feel or scent or not, you've you've got to start with the Lord is here, the Lord is near, Mm -hmm. and trust the promise, you know, Scripture, um, if you draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. You mm-hmm. start there before you feel or sense anything. Right. I do think we need to be careful that sometimes we show up and we're like the false prophets on Mount Carmel, right? Like we're like dancing and screaming and yelling and thinking like we need to put on a show in order to make God be with us instead of saying like, no, the Lord is all around us and what we, I mean, it sounds like semantics, but to really say like, no, what we're really asking for is that the Lord would heighten our awareness and mm-hmm. open our hearts to receive what that the Lord is in our midst. And well, there, there's that place in Ephesians where Paul says, open the eyes of our mm-hmm. hearts so mm-hmm. that we might see mm-hmm. the, I think, the hope that is within us and the power that is within us. Uh, but ultimately, what he's pointing at is the presence of the Spirit. And what I think is so interesting about that verse um, is, you know, that's a, a, a song. We sing really that song. Open the yeah. eyes of my heart, Lord. And I heard that song for the first time um, in a context um, of a church where I was not the pastor, but the Presbyterian pastor was making fun of it. He was like, I hate the song, but we have to sing it because, you know, this person, I mean, it really yeah. was explicitly saying like, well, this person wants it and they're just not very spiritual mature. So we're just going to do the song, even though it's like emotional and whatever. And wow. I just think there is like, let's just name that there's something in the mainline tradition that is really uncomfortable with that kind of intimacy and emotional encounter yes. with God. Like we think it's like unsophisticated and, and it's not intellectual. And I mean, you can think that, but it, you know, that phrase, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, it didn't come from some like some body smoking pot in a coffee house trying to write a good worship song. It came from scripture, right? So this is not people trying to make the Lord more intimate than God wants to be. I mean, this is the authentic um, representation of scripture. I I mean, and I, I just, I think that it's really important for us to pay attention to our discomfort with that and to recognize that our discomfort is says something about us and not about yes, God. And what we did on Sunday at Dorada Church was celebrate the reality and acknowledge the reality that there is a hunger 
mm-hmm. and the congregation for more of that. Well, because that would not have been true right. five, six plus years ago. And so something, something being <laughs> someone, the Holy Spirit, stirring in the congregation. Well, and I will say, when you were saying about, and then I know we need to quit, but um, you were saying like, well, what did the people at Emmaus do? And what, what did that look like? You know, walking with a stranger and listening and then breaking bread together. But, you know, the other thing they did, um, which I think is really important, is they they left when they no longer believed. And I think that that's actually really powerful, that they didn't stay in the room in Jerusalem and, like, try to figure out, like, okay, well, how can we salvage this and how can we whatever. They're just like, you know what? Jesus isn't who we thought he was, and so we're going to go back to our old lives. And I think that sometimes we are so desperately trying to hold on to a way, our understanding of God that doesn't work anymore that we don't. And we're so terrified to acknowledge that we don't believe anymore, that we actually then are not open to the ways that God will meet us in our disbelief. I had a conversation with a young adult um, who came to me because he was concerned um, that he just didn't believe in the Christian faith anymore. He just, I just don't, I just don't know if I believe in God. And so I said, well, tell me about that. And he talked for a while, and I was like, great, I don't believe in that God either. Right, <laughs> right. That what you're describing is uh, is the God of, of Christian culture, church mm-hmm. culture, not so much the God of the Bible, the way God right. is presented in the Gospels, and especially, um, did I say the God? Uh, I mean, especially in the Gospels. Right, and I think the reality is, like, there are some people who don't believe in the God of Christian culture anymore, and they also just are not interested in being in relationship with God. But what the disciples, the Emmaus Walk disciples, you know, they did want to be in relationship with God. True. They were also willing to tell the truth about their disappointment and their dashed hopes, and they weren't trying to hold on to the appearance of a faith they didn't have. And I think it's really important to say, like, God is complete. God, Jesus was not offended that they didn't believe in him anymore. And he met them in in their seeking and they were seeking so they were receptive to that and i think you know we as a church need to be a place where we celebrate people who are seeking god and also who are telling the truth about what they don't believe in anymore because god isn't limited by our disbelief but but i think our ability to control is is limited by people's disbelief and to be able to say like no i really believe that the God of creation is active in the world, making all things new and is still encountering with people. And so I want to celebrate you to walk in your, you know, God meets us in reality, not in pretending. And people need to be able to still be part of our community, not hostile to faith, but be part of our community and saying like, I don't actually have this experience that you're having because God can meet them in that. Um, so anyway, that I, we really need to stop talking and now I've essentially re-preached my whole sermon. So sorry if you were there at the Grove on Sunday. Bonus. Um, (laughs) Hey, thanks for listening to us. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's church, Derida Presbyterian church, you can go to their website, which is D E R I T A pres P R E S dot And you can look for um, the podcast, the Derrida Church podcast, which has all of Pastor Yolando's messages on it, all the back catalog. And you can also worship with them at 1030 on Sunday mornings. 
and find out where to go on the website. And you can check out their YouTube channel and see um, worship services there as well. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at The Grove, um, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can check out our podcast, The Grove Church Podcast on iTunes or, you know, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, There are a lot of Grove churches, so you're going to need to make sure you find the one in Charlotte and um, our YouTube channel as well. Or you can join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in the sanctuary or on the live stream. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week.